from Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel chapter 11 and starting at verse number 19. Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse number 19. And I will give them singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart. So they will obey my decrees and regulations. Then they will truly be my people and I will be their God. Why don't we pray and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts this morning. And uh, just ask God, say, God, whatever you have to say this morning, let me hear it through your word. Help me to receive it. Help me to understand it. Help me to, to know how to apply it to my life. Would you make that your prayer this morning as we go before the Lord before we hear the preaching? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you'd open our hearts to hear you. Lord Jesus, we've, we've come today. We've gathered together to worship you. And most importantly, we want to hear from you, God. We've, we've thanked you. We've praised you. Now, Lord Jesus, we want you to speak to us. Speak to our hearts, Lord. I pray, God, that there would be a, a flow of your spirit to move in amongst us today and to touch us, to change us. Let the power of your presence and of your spirit be felt and seen and, and experienced here today. In Jesus' name, amen. You could be seated. Thank you for standing. Thank you for being here this morning. Ezekiel was an interesting prophet, to say the least. If you read the book of Ezekiel, um, you will discover that, that he had a lot of interesting experiences, visions, and uh, just God used him in a very unique way. There really wasn't a prophet like the prophet Ezekiel before or after him. He was kind of special in a lot of ways. And, and Ezekiel had this really, this really powerful experience. We can read about it in Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11, where... He is experiencing the presence of God in a very real and visible way. Uh, he, he sees the presence of God visibly. He sees angels and cherubims. And, and uh, you know, the, the, uh, I don't know if you ever watched the old show Touched by an Angel or any of those things where, I don't remember her name, uh, that one actress, and she's really famous. She's been in a lot of movies, but... She was the classic angel, Della Reese, that's her name. And she's this, you know, this quintessential motherly figure that comes in and, and touches, you know, touched by an angel. She, she touches lives and she's just this beautiful motherly patron, matronly figure in the, in the TV show. But you read the book of Ezekiel and when <laughs> Ezekiel describes to you what an angel looks like, I mean... No, I'm sorry, Della Reese was poorly cast for an angel because when you read Ezekiel, he says that these, these, these beings had, had uh, six wings. With two they flew, with two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet. And they had hands under the wings, and then they had four heads uh, or four faces on their heads. And, you know, there was the ox, the man, the eagle, and the lion and, and they, with, they, with their two wings, they flew, and they sang, holy, holy, holy. And, and just there was wheels within wheels, and they were spinning, and they were on this platform, and they were floating, and they were buzzing, and they were just, I mean, just kind of crazy imagery. And, and uh, you read this, and you get this sense that Ezekiel's seeing a very, very um, 
pictured vision. So this vision, the images there are meant to represent things, which, by the way, is not the topic of the lesson here this morning. That's more of a Wednesday night Bible study where we go slow and like a slow cooker. We just percolate along and, and pick it apart piece by piece. But, but he's seen these, these crazy visions and these crazy experiences from God. And, and the, the, the experience that I wanted to draw from this morning is found in the passages of Ezekiel 11, uh, 10 and 11, really. And, and the Lord is, is talking to the nation of Israel. And he's addressing their, the, the condition of their heart. And, and you can read it in Ezekiel, and, and, it, and the nutshell message is the heart is sick. The human heart is defective. There's, there's a brokenness about the human heart that, that the law could not fix. See, God had given his people a law. They'd given Moses ten commandments plus a few hundred extra commandments and instructions about about worshiping in a temple and sacrificing animals. And the laws just went on and on and on. And, and, and the, the reality of it was the law was powerless to help man do right. That there was, this, there was this nature within man and women that was just broken, that could not do the rules. It, it just could not align itself perfectly to the rules. I was talking about this with my friend. I said, you know, it's funny when I try to live right for God, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to do the right thing, I'll, I'll, I'll actually succeed from time to time. You know, I'll get it right. I'll do it right. And then I'll, without even realizing, I'll start going, man, I, I just, good for me. I just did the right thing. And without realizing it, my pride has now kind of invalidated the good that I've done. Not, not really, but do you know what I mean? Like I, I do the right thing, but then I get proud about how I'm doing it so right. And, and I might even get to the place where I look down at people who are doing it wrong. Oh, I know the better way of doing it. If they would just listen to me, I, I could really show them a thing or two. But the Bible says that pride is, is just as much of a sin as murder or, or envy or gossip or, or lust. Or, do you see what I mean? Like even in trying to do right I still do wrong. I, I still mess up. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. He says, I try to do the right thing, and I inevitably slip into the wrong path. I, I, somewhere in the process of trying to do right, I do wrong. There's this, there's this brokenness inside of me that I cannot seem to get it right. And I might get it right in one area, but in, in another area, I'm really deficient. I'm really struggling. I am really, really just can't seem to make it work. And so God is addressing this condition to the people of Israel. See, they had, they, had, they, had, they had countless men of God come into their life and perform miracles. You know, the, I hear the church a lot of days talking about how much we want to see miracles. God, if we could just see miracles, man, people would just flock to the church. And that's probably true. And I, I believe in miracles, and I think we should pray for them. But, but just know that Israel was full of miracles. They were, they were full of the Red Sea opening. They were full of the, the ten plagues hitting the nation of Egypt. They were full of, 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 of axe heads floating to the top of the riverbank and, and restoring a man's livelihood. They, the, the, the people of Israel were full of all kinds of miracles. Their enemies being destroyed by bees and wasps. I mean, you just read through the Old Testament. You come across some crazy stories of how the, this nation of people was going to totally 
decimate the land of Israel. And God sent an angry army of hornets to come and fight the battle for them. Crazy. Miracles. Things that, that you know, they didn't even know was happening, was happening. Miracles on every hand. Yet, the nation was still falling apart at the seams. There were still corrupt leaders in the government. Despite the amount of prophets that came in and said, hey guys, you need to turn it around. Hey guys, you need to stop murdering people in the streets. Hey guys, you need to stop taking advantage of the widows and the orphans. Hey guys, you need to start taking care of the, hey, you need to start taking care of the foreigners and the strangers in your land. Stop treating them like slaves. Uh, You know, treat them fairly. Give them a day's wage. Do right by them. Despite all of the warnings and all of the prophets and all of the, the, the influx of God's hand on their life, the Bible says that they were, they were hard-hearted. They were hard-hearted. What does that mean, hard-hearted? A heart of stone. Well, I mean, if you want to think of it literally, if someone's heart turns into stone, their body dies immediately. It's called a heart attack. The heart stops beating. It becomes lifeless, no longer pumps the blood through the arteries, the capillaries, and all the, the parts of the body. doesn't receive oxygen. The brain dies within a few minutes of, of uh, oxygen deprivation, and the blood is responsible to carry that oxygen there. And so if the heart turns to stone, then the body cannot live. And so God says these, these people have become dead. Really, they're, they're lifeless. Their actions are meaningless. Their, their pursuits are empty despite their, their, their achievements of Uh, of success or armies getting bigger or their nation getting more wealthy, there's a lifelessness about it. I mean, just look at the people that win the lottery. By the way, if you win the lottery, congratulations. Just make sure you pay your tithes. But it's not the answer to your problems. Just just do a little homework. Go on Google and, and type up what happened to the people who won the lotto 649. And there's, there's some who, you know, were wise and invested money and whatever, but there was many of them, probably the, the majority, ended up more bankrupt after than before because they weren't capable of managing that kind of influx of money. They, weren't, they, they didn't have the capacity to hold the money that was being given to them. And, and so, so it's really not, it's not, a, it's not a matter of that. It's, it's the heart. It's the condition of the heart. That's the, that's the issue there. And God said, you know, it's not, it's not for lack of warning. It's not for lack of, of miracles. It's not for lack of, of, of angels visiting you and not for lack of the word of God being preached to you. But there's a condition of your heart that has gone hard. The first time we read of the word hard-hearted or someone who hardened their heart was in Exodus. A man by the name of Pharaoh who had enslaved the people of God, the, the children of Israel. This is before they were a nation, before they had prophets, before they had kings, before they had a temple, before they had a land. They were, they were slaves in, in the land of Egypt for 400 and plus years. And God sends Moses to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, let my people go. But God warned Moses. He says, Moses, when you get there, Pharaoh is going to harden his heart towards me. He's not going to let you go. So do what I command you. Go there and perform miracles. So Moses, Exodus 7 verse 10, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh 
and did what the Lord commanded them. And Aaron threw down his staff before Moses, before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. It became a serpent. I mean, that's pretty spectacular, right? Someone throws a stick down and it turns into a snake. And Pharaoh said, no problem, I'll call in my own wise men and sorcerers. This is, this is the condition of the hard heart. I'm not impressed with what God can do. I can do what God can do. God, Who is God to tell me that I should let his people go? I'm my own God. I can decide for myself. I can determine my own course. Who are you to tell me how to live and do my life? I'm, I'm the master of my own ship. I'm the captain of my own vessel. I'm the man of my life. I'm the woman of my own uh, design, and I'm going to do what I want. This is the condition of the hard heart. Pharaoh says, I'm going to call in my own sorcerers and magicians, and he does it. But Aaron's staff, verse 12, swallows up the staff of the magicians. God wanted to demonstrate for Pharaoh, you may be able to replicate what I do, but you cannot do it like I do it. You, you may make life good for yourself for a time, but you cannot do it exactly like I can do it. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are better than your ways. You're, you'd be better off to trust and rely and depend on me. Verse 13, Pharaoh's heart, however, remained hard. He refused to listen just as the Lord had predicted. But this was, you know, you, you want to single out guys like Pharaoh, and you might even want to single out the nation of Israel, go, those hard-hearted people. Oh, wish they could really get their act together. We just read these stories, and man, why couldn't they, why couldn't they just figure it out? They had all that, it was like handed to them on a silver. What, what was wrong with these people? What was wrong with Pharaoh, Right? Someone comes into my house and throws a stick on the ground, turns into a snake. I'm probably going to listen. I'm probably going to be like, well, that was interesting. That's what he had to say. Right? He turns the, the whole river system into blood. I'm probably going to go, well, all right, what do you have to say? Right? He calls down fire and hail. And, uh, man, I think at some point I, I look at Pharaoh and go, what was wrong with you? What was wrong with you? You, you, you hard-hearted. Until I look in the mirror and realize all the times that God has convicted me and I've gone, eh, yeah, yeah. Until I realize all the times that God has tried to get my attention through different circumstances and situations and I go, yeah, 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 right. I have to, I have to really look at myself. I, I don't know about you, but I've come to realize I'm no better than Pharaoh. I'm really not like King David. You know, I, I, we all love to read the story of David and Goliath and how David killed the giant. And man, I want to be just like David. I'm going to kill my giant. When I'm a lot more like Goliath than I am like David. Sometimes I'm a lot more like, who is this God that can tell me what to do? I, just, I hope I'm, I'm not ruining your worldview of what pastors are supposed to be like, but pastors are people too. Pastors are humans just like you. We struggle with the same kind of mental health things that everybody else in the world struggles with. And maybe even to a greater degree, people in ministry suffer from mental health things more than others. I, I don't know more, but in the same ways. Like we're broken people just like you. We have God. Yes, we have, 
we have some answers. We have, we have some things, but, but we are broken, and we're trying to figure things out just like everybody else in the world. And I'm, I'm sometimes a lot more like Pharaoh and a lot more like Goliath than I want to admit. I'm a lot more like Herod, you know, in the story uh, that, that when, when, when the wise men came and said, hey, there's, there's a Savior that's born in your town. And he goes, whoa, that's going to put an end to my rule and my reign. That's going to that's gonna really mess up my long-term plans. And I'll confess there's times in my life that I'm not really at the baby-killing stage, but, but there's times in my life where that same root of I don't want anything to mess up my kingdom crops up in my heart, Right? Not that I'm going to go and, and, and do the kinds of heinous crimes that Herod or these other guys did, but, but the same seed that was in their heart that was allowed to grow, if it was allowed to grow in me, I would no doubt become just like those people. And, and, and really, we can't, we can't progress in our walk with God until we get to that place where we say, you know what, I am prone to error and, and, and I'm prone to messing it up, and I'm prone to making the same, and I'm prone to being hard-hearted and difficult and stubborn with God and with my family and with my friends. I'm, I'm likely to be the stubborn, obstinate mule that I really don't want to be, and I really wish other people wouldn't be with me. Just being transparent here this morning. hope it's not messing you up too bad. So God addresses this issue. Because it is the issue. The issue is not, you cannot do enough right. I've had people come in the church and say, Pastor, just give me the list of rules. Tell me what I'm supposed to throw away, what I'm supposed to buy new, what I'm supposed to get rid of, what I'm supposed to stop watching, what I'm supposed to start watching. And I'll tell them, I cannot provide that list. The Bible doesn't even provide that list for you. It doesn't. You have to read through and dissect and then, and then categorize and put it all together for yourself. And even then, if you, if you made such a list, you would not be able to live up to it. The point Paul makes in Galatians, and by the way, if you want a good study on this, please come to our Wednesday night Bible studies, 7.30 on Zoom. You can do it from the comfort of your living room, your office, wherever you are. Please join us. We, I mean, it is invigorating. The study on Galatians is it's. It's, it's affecting me in, in so many ways. I'm learning so much in studying this because what Paul addresses in Galatians is he says, you cannot live by the law. It's not possible for you to do enough right things to please God. You will never make God love you more by doing all the right things, by living all the right ways and checking all the Christian boxes off. You will not get to the end of that checklist and go, God loves me more today than he did yesterday. It's not possible. You cannot live by following the dictates of the law. So what's the answer? The answer is what God says in Ezekiel 11. I will take away their stony heart. You cannot reform. You cannot reform the heart. You cannot go to enough counseling and reform the heart. Am I for counseling? My wife and I regularly go to marriage counseling because it's good. It's godly. It's it's good to talk things out, get help for where you're struggling. I believe every married couple needs marriage counseling because you can't make it on your own. You weren't designed to know how to do Big things like marriage and family on your own. Not possible. 
God did not create us to live in an isolated silo by ourselves. He created us to be in community with one another. That's why the church is called the body of Christ. Cut off your hand and put it in the fridge and tell me how well it survives. It will not. It needs to be attached to the body. When there's a part of your body that's sick, cutting it off and putting it in an isolated part of your house is not going to make it better. You, if, if your finger gets cut, you can't cut your finger off, put it in the closet with a book on how to suture someone's finger together, and hope that by the time that finger has enough alone time in the closet, it's going to figure out how to sew itself back up and get back on your hand. No, you need to go to the ER and let somebody else operate on your finger. You've got to let the body heal itself. You've got, to, you've got to do things to support the healing in your life. So you need community. You need counseling. I need that. But more than all of those things, I cannot go to enough counseling to reform my heart. My heart has a defect. My heart has a defect that medicine cannot fix. My heart has a defect that surgery cannot repair. My heart has a defect that only the one who created my heart can fix it. And the one who created my heart says, I'm going to take away the stony heart. And I'm going to give you not a stony, stubborn heart, but a tender, responsive heart. I'm going to replace the defective part. There comes a part in cardiology where they cannot rely on the old heart. They give it medicine. They give it surgery. They give it all kinds of stints and bypasses. And eventually they just say, you know what? We need a heart transplant. The only way this person's going to survive is if they get a new heart. They need a new heart. The old one is broken beyond repair. Medicine won't fix it. Surgery won't fix it. Lifestyle changes won't fix it. It needs to be replaced. And so God said to Ezekiel, tell the people, I'm going to take away their stony heart and I'm going to give them a new heart. But surrounding this promise, and by the way, that is the hope this morning for you, is you don't have to, you know, all of these struggles I've been transparent about this morning are, are largely dealt with when God gives me a new heart. But the story surrounding this promise is very fascinating. Ezekiel 10, I'm just going to walk you through it really quick. Just for, for argument's sake, Israel had something called the temple. It wasn't like anything like today. It's not like a church. The church is somewhere you go to experience the, the, the presence of God. But you know, you, you've probably, most likely, whether you realize it or not, experienced the feeling of God's presence outside of a church building. Maybe you've prayed a prayer by yourself, a very short prayer, not, not long or drawn out, not a lot of these and thous, but just an honest prayer, and you felt that, that touch on the back of your neck. I don't know, that's where I always feel it. So, like something brushes up against the back of my neck and the hair's stand on end, you know, that there's like something has touched me that, that is not visible. There's a, a presence here. I, I sense something in the room that is not human. It's not flesh and blood. There is a, 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 a sense that is maybe what you call a sixth sense, a spiritual sense that something has come into the room and I've just said a little prayer. Maybe you've walked out of your door on a fresh spring morning and the smell and the sights and the colors all wash over you and there's this surge of joy in your heart. 
don't know if you've ever experienced that. You're feeling the blessings and the favor and the presence of God in that moment. That's, that's what you're feeling. And I can prove that to you by Scripture, but, but that, that is literally, you're not just feeling nice. You are feeling the blessings of God. The, the joy that surges up from you is a gift from God. It's something God gives you. You're having a spiritual experience. And so that was not necessarily a strong reality in the days of of Ezekiel. In the days of Ezekiel, the only place you could experience that touch, that supernatural presence, was in the temple. In the temple was where the, the presence of God lived. If you wanted to pray, you had to pray either towards the temple, you had to turn to the east and pray towards the temple. You had to go to the temple and, and offer a sacrifice. If you wanted your prayers to be accepted, you had to be a regular attender, a regular contributor, and a regular sacrifice maker at the temple. And it was a physical place you had to go to. And the Bible says that the glory of the Lord rested above or in the temple above the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat was a room at the very back of the temple that nobody was allowed to go in. Only the high priest, which was one person, every generation, every 50 years, there was a new high priest. So every generation, there was a new high priest. And he was the only man allowed in the whole nation to go into that presence of God, and only once a year. Very, very restricted. The church was not an open-door community. It was very closed because sin was the issue. And so this is where if you wanted to experience the presence of God, you had to meet all these qualifications. Oh, and you had to be a Jew on top of all that. So if you were not a Jew, tough luck. You had to convert to Judaism, which is another big, long life change. And you probably wouldn't have been allowed to come to the temple anytime soon. It would have been a few-year process, and then you might have been allowed to offer sacrifice. So I'm just giving you the backdrop, okay? But God's presence dwelt there in the temple. But here Ezekiel says, in Ezekiel 10, verse 4, the glory of the Lord rose up above the cherubim and went over to the entrance of the temple. God changed places. God used to dwell in the sanctuary in the holiest of holies above the cherubim. And the Bible says the presence of God, the glory of God, the visible presence of God lifted up from where it usually was and moved to the entrance of the temple. And the Bible says the temple was filled with the cloud of glory and the courtyard glowed brightly from the glory of the Lord. Wherever God's presence is, it changes the atmosphere of where it is. Wherever, whenever God is allowed to enter your life, His glory will change the way things look around your home. So God moves from His regular place to the door. And, and you might go, well, that's kind of interesting. Why is God moving towards the door? Well, the same reason all of you move towards the door. To leave the building. God was leaving His temple. And then... A few verses later in verse 18, the Bible says the glory of the Lord moved out from the entrance of the temple, hovered above the cherubim, and I watched as the cherubim flew with their wheels to the east gate of the Lord's temple. So God just doesn't move to the door of the temple. He moves to the east gate, the outer perimeter of the temple. If you wanted to have an illustration, it would be like the presence of God usually dwells right here. And then it moved to the door and stayed there for a few minutes to kind of see what are people going to do when God's presence leaves the house 
What are the people going to do that always come to the temple? How are they going to act when God's presence leaves its usual place and goes to the door? And then when God's presence got to the door and realized, hey, nobody really even noticed that I've moved. That's funny. I'm usually over here. Now I've moved there, but nobody's saying anything. So God said, all right, I'll move out to the parking lot. So God goes out into the parking lot and just kind of hovers there and waits there. He actually talks to the people for a while. He says, you know what? You're murdering people in the streets. You're doing all this sin. You're you're living this way that is not according to my law. I can't stay here anymore, guys. I I can't live in this environment, this toxic environment. He addresses the leaders of the city. And he says, you're corrupted. You're, you're, you leaders of the people, you're corrupted. You, you, you've murdered in the streets. You're filling them with the dead. You're mistreating people. All of this stuff. But you got to fix this stuff, guys. Come on. But nobody responds. So it's in this environment that God finally says, you know what? This is not a problem that more rules is going to solve. The problem with the nation of Israel is the problem with you and I this morning. We have a hard heart. I'm sorry if that offends you this morning. Hopefully you wouldn't be offended if your doctor told you you had a heart condition. Because it's not, it's, it's not a personal attack against you. You're in the same place as every other human being on this planet. From the President of the United States, the Prime Minister of Canada, to, to the lowliest uh, person on the streets that's living under a tent, on, on the back end of Ajax, it, we are all in the same position. I don't care if you have billions attached to your name or if you have a bunch of letters after it that talk about how many years you spent in school and how much money you threw, you threw towards education to make yourself a better person. You are in the same boat as the rest of humanity. We all have a defective heart. Jeremiah said this. He said, who the heart is desperately wicked, it's deceitful above everything else in this world. Who possibly can know the, the, the ins and outs of the human heart? It is, it is bent on evil, it is bent on destruction, and that is the prescription. But God said, the only way I'm going to actually change this, the only way I'm ever going to be able to live, my presence is ever going to be able to live in the temple with my people, is if their heart condition is completely changed. Ezekiel ends his vision by saying, the Lord moved away from the parking lot and went to the edge of town. And basically sat on a hill and looked back over the city of Jerusalem. And nobody noticed that God had left the building. Now that, 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 that seems like a shocking statement, but the truth is, we're all in that place. So what does God do? Ezekiel 36, he, he kind of finishes off the ministry of Ezekiel by giving one of the best promises we've ever received. Ezekiel 36, 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. 
I will put my spirit in you so that, here's the deal, I'll put my spirit in you. Your spirit's defective. Your spirit is dead and broken. Your heart, your spiritual heart has died. And so your spiritual man is dead to the things of God. You cannot receive, know, understand, or even desire to do the things of God because your spirit and your heart are defective. So I'm going to take out your, your heart and give you a new one. I'm going to put a new spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. And so God comes back to his temple. From that point, from Ezekiel chapter 11 on right even until the days of Jesus, the glory of the Lord never came back to the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was torn down, they rebuilt it, but the glory of God, the presence of God never came back to the temple. Jesus grew up going to a temple that had no glory in it. But you know what? Jesus was the glory of God in a new temple. John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that the word became flesh. The presence of God, the thoughts of God, the the plan of God became a human being and tabernacled himself among us. Jesus was the new tabernacle. God on the move. So wherever Jesus was, there was healing. Wherever Jesus went, there was miracles. Wherever Jesus, whoever Jesus touched, their life was changed forever. Because wherever the presence of God is, it changes the atmosphere of the place that it's in. And so wherever Jesus was, he would speak the words of God. Wherever Jesus was, he would tell the stories of God. Wherever Jesus was, he would do the work of God. Wherever Jesus was, he would deliver. He would forgive sins. He would set free. He would deliver captives. Uh, But then Jesus died on the cross, and you go, oh, the glory left the temple again. Now what? You turn the bu- keep turning the pages of Scripture, and you get to that moment in Acts chapter 2 that I want to call the epicenter of everything God was doing in the world. Began in Acts chapter 2. Because the Bible says, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a rushing or roaring of a mighty windstorm, And it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each one of them. Now, you have to be a little bit Jewish to understand what's going on here. But this is exactly what happened to every temple that was built in Jerusalem. They would pray a prayer, they would dedicate it, and fire would fall from heaven and rest over top of the temple. It happened in Moses' day. It happened in Solomon's day. And the glory of God would come down from heaven in a visible flame of fire. And it would sit on top of the temple. And that would tell the people, God is in the house. The presence of God is here. The glory of God has arrived. God is on our side. God is here. We can talk to God. We can fellowship with God. We can sacrifice. We can worship God. We can hear from God. We can talk to God. God has come down to us. 
us. His presence is here. And so when the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord, the, 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 the flame, the wind blew into the, temp, in, into the upper room where the disciples were sitting, and little flames of fire came and sat on each one of their heads. It was a symbol. God was saying, my temple is no longer a building made with hands. That's why this building can be an office. Tomorrow we could sell this place, and it could become a massage parlor. And it wouldn't desecrate the presence of God. It wouldn't taint anything, because God isn't housed in a physical building. God's presence is in my heart. God's presence is in the heart of those who've received the gift of the Holy Ghost. I'm preaching to you a message today, next week, and the week after that says, I need the Holy Ghost. I need the Holy Ghost because it's the new heart God promised me. I need the Holy Ghost because it's the new spirit God promised me. In other words, I cannot live for God without the Holy Ghost. So God says, I- I'm going to fill them. And then what looked like flames of fire of uh, tongues appeared on and settled on each one of them. And the Bible says everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. God, God fulfilled his promise. He said, I'm going to take out the, the old heart and I'm going to give them a new one. I'm going to take out the old spirit and I'm going to put in the new spirit. And the spirit is going to be my spirit. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. This is what is called speaking in other tongues. The Bible teaches us that it's the evidence you've received the gift of the Spirit. It's the doorbell God rings when he arrives at your home. It's, it's, you know, speaking in tongues is not the Holy Ghost. It's the evidence of the Holy Ghost. If I may use a crude example, uh, you know, your, your shoe has a tongue in it, right? And, and all shoes have tongues. The, the, the tongue is not the shoe, but every shoe has one. So uh, that might, might be a bad example. But, but, you know, everybody who's received the Holy Ghost is going to speak in other tongues. Because it's the evidence. You turn over to Acts chapter 8. They, they go to a city called Samaria. And there's a guy there by, by the name of, of, of Simon. And he's a sorcerer. And he's, he's kind of corrupted. And, and, and he sees the apostles lay hands on people. And they start speaking in tongues. And he goes, I want that power too. I, I, want, I want the ability to lay hands on someone and they, they receive the Holy Ghost. They speak in other tongues. There is evidence. Paul talked to a group of, of disciples in, John, in Acts 19. He said, have you, have you uh, received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said, well, we didn't even know there was a Holy Ghost. So Paul deals with their baptism. He deals with that. And the Bible says when they laid hands on them, they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There was a, there was a witness that God had entered into the building. And this is what it was, that they had received the Spirit. It's a powerful experience, and you need the Holy Ghost. You need it. I need the Holy Ghost. Someone said to me, Pastor, do I really need the Holy Ghost to go to heaven? And my answer to that is, I need the Holy Ghost to go to Walmart. I mean, I don't know about you, I need the Holy Ghost to wake up and deal with my family. I'm maybe not as sanctified and perfect as the rest of you here this morning, but I wake up on the wrong side of the bed, and I need the Holy Ghost to guard my mouth. There's been moments in my life where I literally opened my mouth to say something, and it was like the Lord put a block there and said, say this instead. And literally, I was about to say that nasty comment, and the Lord changed it on the fly instantaneously, and it came out nicer it came out sweeter, and in my heart, my, my, my flesh is going, that ain't really you. And I go, I know. 
that ain't really me, but it sure worked. <laughs> it worked for me. What's going on there? It's the Holy Ghost. When I let the Holy Ghost work in me, he helps me to keep the laws that he has created. He said, I'm going to put my law in your heart so you'll know. You'll know when you're going down the wrong path. He said, you're going to get to the place where I'm just going to guide you with my eye. I'm going to look somewhere, and you're going to be sensitive enough to my spirit to know this is the way I'm going. God won't even have to speak to me. He won't have to point it out to me. He won't have to write it out in a bunch of rules. He'll just look, and I'll know, and I'll go. I need the Holy Ghost. You need the Holy Ghost. And guess what? The best part about it is when you read Acts chapter 2, verse 38, when finally the, it was noised abroad that they had received the Holy Ghost and they were speaking in other tongues, and the Bible says people gathered around, they said, what is going on here? Peter said, hey, this is the fulfillment of all those promises in the Old Testament that God is going to give us a new spirit. And they said, well, what are we supposed to do, Peter? Peter said, repent. Be baptized in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What do I need to receive the Holy Ghost? Repentance and faith. That's it. You don't have to follow a bunch of laws. You don't have to. I've seen the most crudest, derelict people receive the Holy Ghost. And I've seen some of the saintliest people receive the Holy Ghost. You don't have to have a pedigree. You don't have to have all the right checks marked beside your name. All you need is repentance and faith. The first step is what I spent most of this message on, saying, God, I have a stony heart. That's repentance. When you get to the place that you can honestly acknowledge that for yourself, you may not be there this morning 100% okay, 100% okay. But when you get to the place where you can look at God and say, all right, God, I agree. There is a condition here that I cannot fix. And I'm turning to you. That's your repentance. The next is faith. Lord, you said this was a free gift. That if I repent of my sins, if I'm baptized in your name, you would fill me with the gift of the Holy Ghost. I don't have to earn a gift. I don't have to pay for a gift. A gift has been paid for already. Nobody gives you a gift and then hands you the receipt. The only receipt they give you is the gift receipt. And guess what? The Holy Ghost comes with no gift receipt because there's no returns. You can't give it back. Once he gives it to you, you do with it what you want. You can, you can let it work for you. You can let the Holy Ghost work in you, or you can let it sit on the shelf of your heart and just be like a pretty figurine of days gone by. Whatever the case is, you can have the Holy Ghost. It takes repentance and faith. Why don't we stand this morning? Father, I thank you for your word. If you've never received the Holy Ghost and you would like to have this gift, you can have it today, right here, right where you're sitting. You can repent of your sins and say, God, forgive me. I have a stony heart. I need you to change it out. I'm coming to you for heart surgery today, Lord. I need the Holy Ghost. And then just begin to worship him. The Bible says they were gathered together and they were praying and they were sitting down. You don't have to stand. You don't have to jump. 
You don't have to say hallelujah 50 times fast. You don't have to do all kinds of crazy stunts. You just open up your heart by faith and say, God, it's a gift. You're going to give it to me. I receive it. And as, as easy as you do that, you can receive the Holy Ghost right where you're standing. You can begin to speak in other tongues. Your, your language will begin to change. You might feel emotional. You might feel like crying. You might feel like laughing. You might feel like nothing. But, but the presence of God will come on you, and you can begin to speak in other tongues as the 